The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So some of you know I've been talking about freedom in uh, terms of the Buddhist teachings, especially this early Buddhist approach to teaching, testing, testing. I don't think this is working anyway. You let me know if you can't hear me. And I thought tonight it might be nice to consider, reflect on freedom, the freedom to practice. And uh, in a way, this is the opposite of, you know, those feelings, that sense we have sometimes where we feel kind of uh, trapped or helpless, nothing to do, can't can't do it, no way forward, no way back, in the corner. And so the freedom to practice is recognizing that any of that, as strong as it, and as strong and convincing as it is, that despairing, helpless, nihilistic sense that I think most of us, maybe all of us, can fall into at times, right? But this freedom, this experience, or I'd say it's an insight that practice is always available, no matter the conditions. I remember one of my important teachers, Joseph Goldstein, one line he would often repeat is, don't believe the thought, I can't practice until this goes away, or until conditions are different. Then I can get back to my practice. But as long as it's like this now, I can't really practice. It's a, it's a little bit like uh, another version of that same, sort of, I'd call it just to be a little funny, arrogant ig ignorance, you know, because we're so sure I can't practice until this goes away. Another version of that is like, uh, this person won't let me love them. You know, they won't let me love them. Can anybody stop us from loving somebody? Doesn't mean we're going to be close to somebody who's abusive or anything, but opening our heart doesn't depend on anything. It just depends on whether we feel, see that it's always possible to open our hearts. Even with a rattlesnake, you know, that doesn't mean we're going to be close to the rattlesnake, but we don't have to hate it. We can have an open heart about the rattlesnakes. And you know, you know, these days, uh, Putin, the I don't know, president of Russia, you know, sort of the international bad guy, and for good reasons, of course, according to my opinion, but. But we don't need to hate him. And it might be appropriate to fear him, it might be appropriate to do something about what's going on. But do we have to, does, is it functional or necessary to throw him out of our hearts? I'm guessing he's a suffering human being. With all kinds of painful psychological states, I'm guessing, I mean, I don't know, of course. I certainly want, want to be him, 
So this isn't a small thing, just sensing this freedom to practice and even getting then curious about like what's available, what does that mean, freedom to practice? What are those degrees of freedom? There's a, a teaching that's really simple that it's kind of the one of the foundational maps that the Buddha offered. Something like uh, doing no evil, you know, refraining from doing stupid stuff, unskillful stuff, cultivating what's wholesome and skillful, and purifying the heart. These are the teachings of all the Buddhas. You know, all the wise beings, they say the same thing. Stop doing unskillful stuff that cause you and others to suffer. Cultivate ways of being, ways of relating that's, that are healing and contributing to the well-being of yourself and others and purify the heart. And when we think about it, like, <clears throat> do we have freedom to do that? And initially, the first stage of that is to realize, it, it, and it can feel <clears throat> almost like a battle, because we're up against our habits. You know, like if somebody really harms us, hurts us, and we really want to get even, we, you know, we want bad stuff to happen to that person, and uh, then we remember the, you know, the three instructions to abandon unskillful stuff, cultivate the good stuff, and purify the heart. Purify the heart is really just a simple way of realizing how necessary this balanced, stable, present moment awareness is, that sensitivity. So the heart that can see clearly the heart that can see things as they are, the heart that can realize what hasn't been seen, that's the purifying the heart. And purifying the heart of all the wrong ideas and wrong views that form because we're not seeing clearly, we're not really that intimate, that present in any sort of stable way. So when someone pushes our buttons and we're angry, you know, and we, we want to get even, we want that person to suffer, maybe we do it directly, maybe we do it in a sneaky way to, to kind of make sure that they get the punishment they deserve. And uh, we feel that impulse in the heart and we know, like, I don't want to do that, but I really do want to do that, but I don't want to, you know, we're in that, that's that struggle. And so the first part of, I think, you know, just a substantial part of spiritual life is realizing this mind is conditioned with a lot of habit energy. I mean, just think about our upbringing, both our genetic conditioning, but, you know, I was raised in the late 50s and 60s, and my personality, my views, you know, around race, around gender, around class, around everything, 
consumerism was formed by my parents and the TV and my friends and the culture. So not all of that was skillful as you can imagine or helpful. So then when we get interested in abandoning what isn't helpful and cultivating what is helpful, we, we have this, we see that I got to deal with these, these habits. And so part of what we're learning to do, and this is the difficult part, is to feel the impulses that we have to hit back, basically, let's say, to take what we want if we can, grab it. I want that. That will make me happy. We feel that impulse that with practice we have that sensitivity, that moral conscience in Buddhism, Hiri Otapa, that wholesome concern, wholesome remorse that arises from all the mistakes and successes we've had in the past, right? So when I get in the vicinity of something similar, we sense the past. The past doesn't exist, but it lives on as the present moment sensitivity of our heart. Like if we've had a really difficult interaction with somebody at work or a close friend or whatever, and then somehow we heal the relationship. But if we're interacting, every time we're with that person, that part of what the heart is going to be feeling is, honey, be careful. Because in the past you said something that you later really regretted or you too fell into some interaction that was deeply hurtful all around, took forever to heal. Pay attention. So it's, it's not like the sensitive moral conscience tells us what to do and not to do, but it does provide some real information. And that's how we learn to abandon what is unskillful. Some of you know Ajahn Chah, a really important figure in um, some of the waves of Dharma coming here to the West. And uh, one of his important teachers was this uh, very influential monk, Ajahn Man, sort of the founder of what's called the Thai Forest Tradition. It's like a big reformation that started in the early 1900s in Thailand. And part of uh, Thai Buddhism at that time was turned into like a state religion in order to create a counterweight to colonialism. They were really trying not to be colonized by, I think, mostly the British. And so they needed to unify the country and the people were quite devoted to Buddhism. So the, the king and the powers that be in Thailand, they used the people's respect for Buddhism and they kind of made Buddhism part of the governmental structure, which of course doesn't really work for especially a practice like Buddhism, which is by its nature decentralized and uh, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's pretty radical. It's not really, doesn't uh, conform to institutions very well. And when it does, 
it loses something, I think. <clears throat> so, <laughs> interesting for someone in an institu- a Buddhist institution to say, so beware. <laughs> but anyway, so there was this uh, movement in Thailand in the early, uh, late 1800s, very early 1900s, of like, back to the basics. And leaving behind the Buddhist institutions and, and heading for the hills, literally heading for the hills and the forests, and thinking, well, the Buddha laid out a pretty straightforward map, you know, wandering ascetic, carrying just a little bag with a few things, and trusting that if I lead a life that is really grounded in non-harming, and generosity, and purifying the heart, that people will probably feed me just enough to get by. So they did. They headed to the hills in northern Thailand, northern and eastern Thailand, and became a really powerful, influential movement, and now sort of the dominant type of Buddhism practiced in Thailand. Um, And Ajahn Chah met Ajahn Man just for maybe a week, but he considers him one of his main teachers. Ajahn Chah is also dead now. And all, you know, at least as it's recorded from Ajahn Chah's stories, what Ajahn Man told him was this, I mean, this is a real quick summary. In that week of them spending time together and Ajahn Chah asking Ajahn Man questions, the, the sort of Dharma gem was, if you're unsure, then don't do it. And this is, this is really about the first two steps of abandoning what's unskillful and cultivating the good. So we're developing the sensitivity of our heart, continuity of present moment awareness. So we'll, that's how we access this moral conscience, right? We have to be present because that's when these feelings, these intuition, this conscious sense arises for us only in the present moment and we have to be willing to listen. What's the feeling in the heart? And if there's some uncertainty, then we pause. Maybe I won't say, I have the impulse, the tendency to want to say this or do this or not say something. We check in. Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure that's a skillful thing to do or say or even to think. So I'll refrain from it. And that's like a powerful discipline. And then sometimes though, the flavor of the impulse to do something, to think something, to say something, the sensitivity of the heart says, feels good to me, looks good to me, seems to you know, be a motivation that's flowing out of wisdom or compassion. We still continue to be aware, but we bring it into action. We think that thought or say those words or do that thing. I mean, just imagine how many mistakes and terrible things that we've, entanglements we've gotten ourselves into if we just had that sensitivity. I mean, the, the joke is, those of you who have raised teenagers or 
all of us have been teenagers, or maybe you're a teacher of teenagers, is, you know, somehow they're not that aware of that moral, or that moral sensitivity hasn't developed, that conscience. Not that they don't, young people don't have a conscience, but just a combination of like, really trusting that as kind of the primary information system that helps us navigate our lives. The Buddha calls this moral conscience, a sensitivity, hiri uttapa, wholesome concern, wholesome regret, like we appropriately feel some regret. And that's like a beautiful monument in our heart. Don't do that again. <laughs> or be really careful when you're in a similar situation. He calls that the guardians of the world. You know, it really keeps us from doing destructive stuff that's harmful for ourselves and for others. And there's a, a wonderful little story where the Buddha is speaking to his son, who's like seven or eight years old, Rahula, and he had become a novice monk. It's not that, even today, it's not that unusual for some young boys and, and girls too, less, less uh, fewer monasteries for the women, of course, as is the case in these patriarchal cultures, but um, to ordain, especially like orphan boys um, or families that have too many kids that can't feed them, then some of the kids sent to the monasteries and they'll become a novice nun or monk uh, at a, even a very young age. So that was the case with the Buddha's son. And uh, he gave Rahula this instruction, you know, and it seems a little oppressive. He said, before you're about to think something, or say something, or do something, reflect. Is this for my own benefit, my own well-being, the well-being of others, and the well-being of both? And while you're thinking something, while you're saying something, and while you're doing something, reflect. Is this for my own well-being, the well-being of others, or the well-being of both? And after you've thought something, or said something, or done something, reflect. Is this for my own well-being, for others' well-being, or for both? And that's the thing about, you know, when I mentioned, you know, I use that word freedom to practice. But then we hear, oh, we got to reflect before, during, and after around every thought, every speech, every action. And it can feel really heavy. Like, that's a lot of doing. I got into this Buddhist practice stuff, so I could put down that weight of doing, you know, even having to be good. Or, But even though it can feel like a lot of responsibility, and it is, it's so much better than the alternative, which is to not be reflecting before, during, and after. Right? Because then we're basically, whatever impulse, whatever intention has the most strength, we just act out. Because we're, that moral consciousness, sensitivity, awareness, that cares about what's skillful and not skillful, it just isn't there. So what is there is the biggest impulse. You know, the intention to hit back, for example, or to, the intention to take something that's not ours to take. 
oh, I like that, I'm just going to take it. Because I like it. And I'll figure out how to rationalize my taking it. You know, we're pretty good at that, aren't we? <laughs> no one's using it. So I'll take it. And, uh, but it's so much better, even though it can feel a little heavy, to realize, you know what, it matters. The whole reason I'm reflecting is because, to some degree at least, I sense it matters how I relate, what I think, what I say, what I do. So of course I'm going to pay attention. Of course I'm going to cultivate the sensitivity. When I say moral sensitivity, you know, we have a bad, a lot of us have a bad relationship to that word moral. So feel free to substitute another word. But we don't want to cause harm. That's what moral means, you know, it's like caring about non-harming for ourselves and others. So it's so much more free to be reflective in this way than it is to be oblivious around our actions. Thinking that somehow I can outrun samsara, I can outrun causes and conditions that will catch up. I can get away with it. I mean this is, we feel that way a lot of times. I mean even, <laughs> I was with someone a couple of weeks ago when there was a lot of snow and they were just doing a slow U-turn to turn around you know, but it had sort of rained, and there's a lot of snow, and uh, and so it's just a big snowbank, which we normally think of as being soft, but it wasn't soft, you know, it was pretty hard. And they were just going really slow, just about to make the U-turn without hitting the, the snowbank, but it just caught that, you know, right in front of their right passenger tire, right? And, uh, you know, the plastic, it was cold morning, cracks the plastic, up the bumper. And, and it's just this thing about uh, this, it just exemplifies this attitude that I see in my mind so much that, I mean it would have been almost nothing to stop, back up a little, and make this circle complete, right, as opposed to damaging the car in a, in a way. And, uh, but there's just like wanting to get away with it wanting to get away with not being careful. And having the idea that being careful is oppressive. It is oppressive, but it's so much more free than not being careful. That's, it's not about if being careful, it isn't the final answer, it's just so much better than living as if it doesn't matter that we're careful, that we care. Even, even, even that word is sort of heavy for us, isn't it? Like, you should be careful. We were told too many times, probably by teachers and our parents, you should be careful. And so now, we find it unpalatable. But when we just pay attention to our life, our heart will naturally gravitate towards, I'm just going to call it the middle stage of being a human being. The first stage is really hoping it doesn't matter and we can just act out habit energies willy-nilly and hope for the best. And some of us have enough good fortune that it seems to work until it doesn't. And others end up screwed early on, you know, they end up in prison or they end up 
in a really painful life situation because of the consequence of their actions, causing harm for themselves and others, and it comes back to bite sooner or later. So if we're lucky, we shift into this next stage where we've, we're using awareness and we're appreciating awareness because we want to be a really wise parent. That's another word that's now kind of heavy, parental. It's like almost derogatory to say to someone, you're parental. But, you know, we need a wholesome parent. We don't need an abusive parent, but we do need, a lot of the time, we need a wise, caring parent who understands more than we do. That voice, like, that speaks out of the past. That's what that moral sensitivity is. Like, hey, this is the past speaking to you. The past doesn't exist, the future doesn't exist, but the sensitive heart is here and now, and it's like this. And are we gonna listen? It reminds me of a story, some of you maybe have heard me say it or found it yourself, but a long time ago, this is probably more than 30 years ago, uh, yeah, I think it was in the 80s, someone had interviewed Mother Teresa, and, um, and of course, uh, one of the obvious questions is, well, what do you do when you pray? And she answered, oh, I just listen. And then the journalist had the wherewithal to ask, well, what does God say? And she had this great answer. She said, well, he just listens too. And that's kind of, it's like, instead of me cognitively trying to figure out how to be a skillful human being, in Buddhist practice, more what we're doing is we're stabilizing the sensitivity, this present moment awareness, this non-judging, so we're not even trying to be aware in order to be skillful. It's more that we trust this openness, this sensitivity will lead to skillfulness. Not so much me being skillful, but it will create the causes and conditions for more skill and less unskillfulness. So we're putting all our eggs in this one basket of listening. You know, listening to the heart. And the thing about the present moment is when I'm really present, especially with something subtle, like, how's the heart doing? When it's subtle, you really have to listen. But the thing is, if I'm really intimate with that, I'm intimate with everything. What the person is saying, what the body's feeling, what's happening around me. It isn't like the you know, there's a difference between concentrating or focusing on one thing and being open in a sensitive way to the subtle, to the gross. The present moment has that inclusive quality to it. And I would really encourage you just as an experiment to practice this and places in your life that are a little bit charged, maybe there's somebody at work that's somewhat challenging for you, or a relative, or traffic, or whatever it might be, and then instead of having a plan of how I'm going to survive this difficult part of my life, 
use this, like really come at it, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm, I'm really going to be present, and I'm going to rely on the sensitivity to the heart. Does it feel numb? Does it feel hot? Does it feel reactive? Is it calm? Is it tender? And remember, we're not expecting answers. We're just expecting more and more skillful choices to naturally arise out of that. And, and the problem is that we think, I need to know what I'm doing. But that's not actually true. What we really want is to avoid doing the stupid stuff and to do more of the skillful stuff. That's what we really care about. Do we need to be the owner, the one who did the good stuff and avoided the bad stuff? We just think that that's how it works, but that's not how it works. And this is something you can actually check out. Like if you have one of those places in your life that's you know relatively charged and challenging, and let's say you handle it pretty well, and there's nothing much left over, like it happened two hours ago, and as you look back, it's like, well, that worked pretty well. I don't feel too much reverberating. And then you can ask yourself, was I skillful? I mean, in terms of how we would language it to a friend, yeah, that's how we'd say it. Yeah, I, I handled that pretty well. I was pretty skillful, I think, and glad it worked out that way. Right. So it's totally fine to use personal pronouns when we're communicating with others. But when we really sense what happened there was a skillful navigation, but when we're really honest and kind of deconstruct, it was like a natural process. It just so happens that that natural process was being fed or it included that sensitivity because the mind was valuing that sensitivity that comes from present moment awareness. And there's a lot of freedom in that. And I mean, I get to the place now where I'm, you know, if I'm going to have a challenging meeting with somebody or there's just a lot going on and easy to make mistakes and cause harm and entanglements, I get to the place now, not that I, where I try to figure it out, but I, I just clarify my intention. Like, I don't want to cause harm. I just want to do the best that can be done. And, and then the, the last thing I always end up with is like, all I really have to help me through this is to be really present, to be really sensitive. And that, that motivation to be sensitive is really coming out of this compassion, not just for myself, but for the whole, everyone involved. There is, I mean, it's so obvious that there's enough suffering, we don't need more. So we can tap into that. True, there is enough suffering. I do not want to contribute to it. So I'm going to be really present. And it's, even that little bit is so liberating because it frees me from this idea that I should have the answer. I should know how to handle this. Because we don't. And then, but if we think we should know, then we pretend that we know. And then things get even messier. Because then we kind of are in this place, because we're sort of loyal to the idea that I know what I'm, I should be doing. 
I did what I thought was right, and they still made it, you know, and then we have to blame them because we're attached that we knew the right thing, the right way to relate. But life is just way too organic and wild for us to really know how to be skillful in that kind of explicit sense. You know, it's sort of like if you have a young child at home, do you know if they're having a hard night? We don't know what to say or do. What we do know is how to get close to the situation to really show up and to allow some response to come out of that intimacy. It's like, you know, raising a kid and putting it in a book or how to be in an intimate relationship that, you know, have it all mapped out. It doesn't work that way. And you see this, you know, I'm sure you see it everywhere, but in Buddhism and just in my role as a teacher, you know, people who really study the Buddhist teachings but still have this uh, strong sense of, which is totally understandable because we all have it, you know, I'm a human being that's afraid of suffering and afraid of danger, so I'm going to use the Buddhist teachings to clarify the right answer, the right way to live, the right way to be, the right way to have a mind, and I'm going to do it. And it, it's like, you, you can see it a mile away. That, And the thing is they, that we can be very smart in how we do that. Like the person might have a lot of integrity and really have studied, really on that cognitive level, they know the teachings. But they're missing that the practice, the process of awakening, it's all an organic, natural, lawful, organic process. That it isn't something that somebody can dominate or somebody can control. I, I don't know if it was Ajahn Sushito, but one, of, uh, one teacher said that uh, control is the near enemy of connection. You know, like something we, we sense, we intuit, something's of real value, we want to connect, but the only way we know how to connect is through control. And, you know, we see that in how parents relate to kid, their kids, we see that in the ways that we relate to our lovers, and good friends and family, how we relate to our body, how we relate to our spiritual practice. You know, it's sort of that sort of uh, that habit of needing to dominate and control and own. It's all sort of a related pattern coming out of fear of not having a defense, not having a, the safety we want. So then we want to use these things to give the semblance of safety, I suppose. So I want to mention one more thing before turning it over to conversation. So I mentioned the first stage in a way is, you know, with this sensitivity, it's so much better than thinking it doesn't matter, but it does evoke a kind of parental vigilance, like I want to be full of care. 
and I want to know the difference between when I'm being skillful and unskillful. And it feels, it can feel tight, it can, because we know, as we should all know, I am capable of really screwing up my life, and I'm capable of causing suffering for others. So of course there's going to be this wholesome concern and regret when I cause harm. But the more we practice and embody and even embrace that sensitivity, that moral sensitivity, like we don't shun that moral responsibility, like it matters how I think, it matters what I say, it matters what I do. And we just embrace it even though it's, it's intense to be living in this world where our actions matter. Even what we eat matters, how we shop matters. You know, as Ruth Dennison, some of you maybe know, she was one of the early Western teachers in this lineage and had a German accent. And uh, there's a little bit of a, a, a drama queen, I think she would be okay with that, I'm guessing. She was a real interesting, wild Dharma teacher. And, uh, but she would say often, darling, you don't get away with nothing. Right? That's just the teaching of karma. It's like, and, and that sense of responsibility. But the more we own it and integrate it and work with it, that sensitivity and that responsivity, based on the sensitivity, is more and more understood as happening on its own. So even though at some point we really need that sense of the parent in the room, that wise, loving overlord, like, honey, we're going to pay attention. We're going we're gonna to rely on the sensitivity to, get to navigate our life. I care, and I'm not going away. But the more we sort of rely on it, the more the idea of the parent, of being careful, of, of fear of making a mistake, it just gets integrated in a natural way and that sensitivity and that, that, that skillful navigation starts to happen on its own. And then we'll start to notice periods, little places in our life where it felt effortless, like really sticky, tricky situation, easy to make mistakes, and there was a pretty skillful navigation, but it, it almost left us high in a spiritual sense, like that was so much fun because the samadhi, just the, the mind was totally unified and there wasn't any room for the, for the tight parent who wants to be responsible. It was just sensitivity and responsivity. But nobody being sensitive and nobody identified with the response. It was just nature doing the work of nature. And that's how, because it, it always seems like, well, I want to go right there. Like, I want to go right to that being in the flow, being a good human being, a compassionate, wise, skillful human being, but it's all happening on its own. Right? That sounds really nice. I'd like that. How do I sign up for that? Well, the way we sign up for that is 
we got to go through this intermediary phase where the mind, you know, technically we'd say in a Buddhist sense it's wrong view because it feels like I'm trying to be skillful. I'm trying to really listen. I'm trying to be more, you know, respect this moral sensitivity, listen to it, let it inform the choices that are made moment by moment by moment. I never want to leave it behind. So the way to that freedom is that full embracing of sensitivity and responsibility. Not fearing it. Because it's onward leading. It's like we, we, we get good at being a tight parent and then we start to relax and the wisdom of the mind begins to see all of that care, all of that sensitivity, all of that vigilance doesn't actually refer back to somebody who's burdened by it. And, the, you know, it's said like, you can't really go from being careless, not caring, to free. There is this sort of ground where everything touches the heart. I sometimes say that it's, you know, this, this exposure, the sensitivity as we do spiritual practice, it's really too much. But it provokes the deepening of wisdom and love. If we, if we ask the question was, how does somebody get so wise, so unconditionally loving? Well, they're really radically sensitized to everything and only wisdom makes that workable. Because otherwise sensitivity is just unworkable. We feel too much, we sense too much, there's too much beauty and too much horror in this world. And it's only wisdom that knows how to feel and sense and be with all that. Because wisdom understands it's just that intensity being experienced. It doesn't feel entangled with a somebody that's got to do something with it. So I'll leave it here and uh, be nice to hear from a few of you questions or your own reflections related to maybe what I've said. It's always nice to say your name, you could share your pronouns too. And uh, with this mic you've got to point it pretty close to your mouth, like this. And I think I'll turn it up. Do anybody feel like beginning? phase to being a wise parent, having it available to moments of, yeah, come in, not needing the parent. Thank you, Mark. Um, this is going back to the set that you did in this, the 
guided meditation, you led us through a three-step process. I was wondering if you could restate that for me, please, for someone who's cast yourself. Um, is it safe to be okay with the present moment as it is? And so forth. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a related to the instructions that Sayadaw Ukeshaniya gives. And uh, the first one often is, uh, it's really okay to relax and to value relaxation. And then to rec, instead of saying to be aware, sort of the way we would normally say that, oh yeah, you should be aware of the present moment. But that's not actually correct. I mean, it's understandable we'd say it that way, but it's more about recognizing awareness. And then he often adds a, a subset of that to continue recognizing awareness. So the first one's relaxation, inviting relaxation. And as I mentioned in the guided sit, put it as a question so it doesn't feel like a command. Relax. But is it okay to relax? Is it safe for me, the body, the mind to relax? And then Recognize awareness. What's the mind knowing? Is the mind knowing? What's the mind knowing? Is there awareness here? How do I know there's awareness? Oh, this is being known. So we're really coming back. That's a, it's just a way of being grounded. I know it can sound a bit abstract, but something is being known. That's how we recognize awareness. There's always an object, an experience that's being known. We know knowing because objects are being known, experience is being known. And then the last is, when we get some continuity, keeping awareness in mind, recognizing awareness, then we can, this deeper insight, realization begins just to appear in little moments here and there of the capacity to allow. And because it, it comes from this understanding that it's what's happening, what's unfolding is nature. It's not personal, so I don't have to personally control it or even have an opinion about it. I can just see that it's unfolding, that it's nature. And that has the flavor of freedom. Just like the awareness has a flavor of wholeness, there's a, we talk about samadhi being a unification. And when we recognize awareness, and keep recognizing awareness, there's that inclusive sense of the present moment. And it has a visceral, I, I think visceral is the right word, like there's a sense of everything's included. It's sort of that, sometimes we mean, what we mean when we say it's embodied. It's like nothing's outside. Nothing's left outside. Does that kind of what you're asking? Yeah. Other reflections that come up? Yeah, please. Just wanna thanks, Kermit. Hello, my name is Nancy. A little bit closer, Nancy. My name is Nancy, you got it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I got kind of stuck on um, if you're uncertain, don't do it. Um, and the way that this shows up for me most clearly is when 
I fall into a depression or anxiety usually at the same time. And I withdraw and I become isolated. I, I isolate myself. And then I don't want to do anything. I, I'm not motivated. And I think, oh, this, I, I used to like such and such. If I could just get myself to do it, I'll probably enjoy it. But I'm not sure, so I stay home. But that doesn't seem like that's a very good path to, uh, you know, a principle for me to follow when I'm depressed. And I don't know, I don't know how, how to make sense of that concept or that, you know, sort of like a principle uh, for me, how that would apply. Okay, I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, but the, the part about being unsure, it's really about... Uh, unsure about whether it's wholesome or not. Not about whether I want to do it or not. Because you know how it is, a lot of times what's good medicine isn't, especially initially it's not pleasant. Like getting out of the house might evoke a lot of anxiety, but it still might be good medicine for us. And part of that uh, is like, knowing the tendency of the mind, like if the tendency is to stay put, right, then it's sort of like, uh, you know, you're not sure whether that's good for you, staying at home, right? That's the not sure. And uh, so why do you keep doing it? So you can turn it around, right? To really look at like, oh, I'm not so sure this is wholesome, so I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't stay at home again. I'm not sure this is healthy, so why do I keep doing it? Because I don't know how to refrain from staying home. And that's the thing about like, what is the heart saying? Because you said it, like, like, it seems like I should go up. That's what your heart's saying. So that's what we mean by that moral sensitivity, because that, what I'm saying, the heart, you know, that arises, that is the fruit of having lived and made a lot of mistakes and having had some success. That all leaves an impression in the mind stream. And the mind stream, if we're awake in the moment, it speaks in this sort of emotional language, let's call it. And this is, uh, if you've read any of the newer evolutionary science, you know, part of, we think, what makes, separates humans from other species is sort of the rational mind and the ability to language, and that's clearly, you know, unique in some ways. But the richness of this emotional information system and sophistication is also part of what makes humans humans, you know, this capacity. Yeah, thanks. Other thoughts, experiences that people want to share? Questions? We have time maybe for one more. Yeah, Carlos. My name is Carlos speaking. Um, it's great to be back after the first time showing up uh, in person. Uh, one thing that I was uh, also getting stuck on what you were saying is that a lot of your examples have to do with 
taking something that is not mine or saying something. But the difficulty I find is in the thinking. When a thought comes up and immediately there is the appropriation of, there is the construction of the self. And then there is, okay, this is my thought. I mean, I need to say what's right, or I need to. So it's, what is liberating there sometimes is remembering, it, to quote him again, uh, Joseph Holstein, what's a thought? <laughs> kind of like diminishing the, the weight or the value, but it's not always easy. I mean, and in situations right now, I, I was in a situation a week ago with, uh, with a friend, um, and I felt like that. I had to say what I thought it was right, and immediately I felt that I had hurt him. And two things happened. One was that I right away went when I said, I apologize. But then talking to another very common friend, another friend, I we do that all the time. It's like, like feeling that I had overreacted by being too careful or, or, or apologizing for something that didn't deserve this what they thought. Where do you think about that? Do you think? I don't, I don't know. I think I, I um, this, I have this very, your teachings and other uh, teachers' teachings very present on my mind on this. I mean, I, I don't think about that. I don't want to. Because as soon as I said it or, I, or right away, he's my friend and I can see the human side. And there is, what's, I mean, what does it matter what I think or he thinks? I mean, there is at the end, it's just two neurons like connecting. Yeah. Nothing more than that. But, but you, you're the only one who knows the quality of your heart when you said it. So the other person might be oblivious to the negative intention in your heart. But if you're pretty sure that your heart was off, then to make amends makes real, real sense. I mean, it's always a functional or pragmatic question what to say to the other person. But for sure, within our own heart and mind, to realize, I don't want to set that emotion. Those are not the kind of seeds I want to plant. I really want to leave this interaction with my heart unburdened by having done something that felt off. So, and we do, we get very sensitized doing this practice. And it's true what your other friend said, like, oh, you overreacted or whatever. Yeah, in the great scheme of things, people who are really interested in waking up and living a spiritual life, they stand out because these things matter. I know there, there is a case, you know, where we might get identified with making amends, you know, and it's kind of like, yeah, just sort of acting out a little bit, like I'm the Buddhist who says I'm sorry and does these things like that. But you would probably catch that. Like if it was a little stinky, what you're making amends or what you said to your friend after you caught yourself. But it's, it's a good thing to be sensitive. But that doesn't... How we deal with that sort of what didn't feel clean in our heart, that should just be a very pragmatic question. Doesn't mean we always have to say something to that person, right? It just means we have to feel what it feels like 
to have said what I said in that way. Really feel that yucky feeling. And if that leads you naturally to making amends or saying something to your friend, because sometimes we rush to apologize because we don't like that feeling. So it's really important to be willing like to pause, because you can always call them later, you know. I mean, it's nice to do it if, it's, if it works, you know, quickly. But it's better to get clear, like, am I just embarrassed to have made a mistake? And so I'm rushing to make an apology as a way of getting away from that yucky feeling. And just, you know, this is the thing about pausing, like, oh yeah, this is what that feels like. Because I've caught myself doing that a lot, where I, you know, act out in a way that's unskillful with my wife, my partner. And, uh, you know, before she can even say anything, I'm like apologizing, you know, which is just, itself is a little bit violent, you know, in a subtle way. And as opposed to just feeling the humiliation of being an imperfect human being, having done something stupid, and it feels like this. Because that's what makes the impression in the heart, and that's what leads to better moral sensitivity down the road, is letting it land. Like when we make a mistake, we really want the pain to land. Because that's waking up. Like, oh, it's like connecting the dots. So when I think this way, speak this way, act this way, this is the fruit of that. Okay, got it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like indelibly put into the heart, and the heart going forward then won't forget it. Yeah. Thanks, Carlos. We should probably end here. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate that we can gather together. appreciate all of our wise ancestors, folks before us who did their practice, probably in imperfect conditions, and yet, to whatever degree, woke up, become wiser, kinder folks, and passed the teachings along one generation after another. And so it's our turn now to do the best we can to live these practices and the wisdom and the compassion that comes from them. So may this be so. And thanks again everyone for coming. Have a good week everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.